Okay, so I have a kind of a random, well, not a random question. I mean, this is related, uh, but it, going away from from discharge um, and hearkening back to a previous episode of Science Friday that I was listening to, a different one. Um, they were talking to a um, professor from Tufts, I believe, who um, was working on, a, I, th- I think you had mentioned this earlier, like a solid lithium ion, some sort of polymer or something that, because um, right now it's liquid um, and uh, if you, and you notice like when, when you puncture these things, like there's videos on YouTube of people puncturing lithium ion batteries and they explode or they have a pretty violent, uh, violent reaction. Um, and then the whole idea behind the solid one is like that wouldn't happen. Um, but in the cars, uh, they're full of these lithium ion batteries that are vulnerable to explosion, I guess, if they're punctured. I mean, obviously we're, we're contrasting this to a tank full of gasoline so you know the the puncture danger is is omnipresent but um is there uh anything that they do you do you know is there anything that that in in assembling these battery packs that kind of goes to prevent that or 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 help against sure, it sure, or, sure. other than like you know armor around it or something is there sure so so this is actually one of the disadvantages of lithium-ion based systems um which is their volatility and their potential for you know thermal events as we call them um so the reason why first of all um there is a danger of fire with lithium-ion batteries um is because the electrolytes used which are typically some organic carbonates um ethylene carbonate diethylmethylene carbonate um things like that um are very volatile organic solvents um to the point where if you expose these to oxygen and you're just a little bit too hot um they'll just spontaneously combust in air um, so those videos that you see of people puncturing cells with a knife or a nail um, and you know, host, uh, smoke hissing out and all of a sudden bursting to flame um, is a result of these volatile compounds present in the battery uh, igniting um, on contact with air. Um, and again, this is the reason why when you're assembling lithium-ion batteries, um, you do have to take very careful environmental precautions. Um, and this is you know, whether water is present, what the humidity is, what the temperature is, how much oxygen is present. Um, and that's exactly for this very reason. Um, in terms of safety in, term, in a car, um, I believe this is one argument in favor of using an 18650 can cell um, to house these because that can intrinsically provide some protection against puncture. Um, you're not going to see anyone trying to puncture a AA battery with a knife anytime soon just because you do have a stainless steel sort what of barrier about, around it. What about a Ginzu knife? Doesn't that <laughs> cut through steel cans? It can go through a tomato. I don't know. <laughs> But I guess, yeah, so it's kind of almost like the uh, compartmentalized hull of a ship, too, where each cell is its own little thing. So, like, maybe one right, might right, get exactly. punctured. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's definitely, I mean, that's one of the big reasons why Tesla has chosen to use uh, these smaller cells. So many thousands of them, 8,000, approximately 8,000. I know our listeners will shoot me if I say it's exactly 8,000. Um, but uh, because some of the other manufacturers will use pouch cells, which uh, is another format instead um and they'll use fewer of them like a couple hundred and yeah elon musk's sort of primary uh challenge with these has been that if one of those has a thermal runaway event where it starts overheating and then will potentially explode cause fire uh that it's harder to contain that since you've got fewer of them and and uh also they're more difficult to cool because there's um more part of the battery that you don't fully uh can't fully like wrap in cooling and so yeah, they've got the steel can around the battery, and then they uh, they sort of use insulation in between them uh, to prevent something terrible from happening in one of the one of the modules. And and then also that if if they detect there's something going wrong, they can uh, prevent 
more electricity going into those other cells so they won't continue to heat up and potentially uh, cause another explosion. And to date, they haven't had any um, major fire issues with the Teslas except for puncture. Uh, and then they put a titanium plate underneath the Model S to try and help from uh, spikes and stuff on the road going into the into them. But uh, I guess that's just inherent in like storing energy, right? Like, I mean, right. whether it's gasoline or a tank full of hydrogen or natural gas or whatever. Right, exactly. You, uh, and either in whatever scenario it is, you essentially do have a lot of energy stored in some given volume, um, which whatever it is has the tendency to rapidly discharge all that energy. Again, whether it's gasoline or, ba- or battery. Yeah, I mean, I, and it's even when you're in like ludicrous mode, right? You want to be able to rapidly discharge it, but yeah. in a certain direction. And, yeah. yeah, and in a controlled Nature manner. isn't always so accommodating. Yeah. So I guess one, one question I'm sure our listeners are curious about is why, if the battery is a closed cell system, right? Like closed system, unlike an engine where you understand that, oh, there's junk building up in the engine and the parts wear down and the metal wears down. And so at some point your engine is going to go kaput. Why would a battery ever stop? Why wouldn't a battery be infinitely useful forever? Because it's closed, we said, before there's nothing coming in or out of the battery why would it ever change its performance characteristics over time because people obviously notice that after a few thousand miles 10,000 20 30,000 miles they can't go as far right. uh, as they could from day one you certainly so, notice it with your cell phone too yeah like and cell phones for sure yeah. so why why does that why does that happen and and what are you people like you doing to make that not happen <laughs> <laughs> what am i doing to stop what this? are you doing to stop it bernard you're not leaving this recording until you have a solution <laughs> i don't want my iphone to go down to 80 percent in 20 minutes anymore um so i want to preface this answer by first saying that a lot of the side reactions and a lot of what's actually happening inside uh some lithium-ion chemistries is still not very well understood um, and this is an area of active research um but essentially caleb what you're talking about is capacity fading um, and essentially, what is the cycle life of this battery? How many cycles, how many charge and discharge cycles can you use this battery for, you, use before, uh, before it's essentially dead and uh, non-operable anymore? Um, so the main reason for lithium-ion batteries for capacity fading uh, is attributed to parasitic side reactions. Um, and in order to fully answer this question, I need to take a step back. Um, in lithium-ion batteries, at both the anode and the cathode, um, when you first make this battery and you charge up for the very first time, uh, you develop what's called the SEI layer, where the SEI stands for Solid Electrolyte Interface. Um, and this layer essentially um, is sort of a happy accident that fortuitously um, happens in lithium-ion systems. Um, and it essentially protects the cathode and anode uh, from lithium plating, I believe. Um, it does allow for diffusion of lithium ions through this uh, sort of passivation layer that, that builds up. Um, but at the same time, by doing so, it does protect the electrodes from um, developing solid lithium. And again, thinking back to high school chemistry and that sodium explosion experiment, you don't want solid lithium building up inside your battery. Um, that's an easy recipe for disaster. So, so before you go on, so essentially sure. on one of the, is it going to be on the anode? Or uh, the on both electrodes, actually. Okay, so on both electrodes... When it's freshly made, manufactured, uh, it's just the raw metal or graphite. And then as it starts being charged for the first time, actually sort of like a lithium film develops on, the, on both electrodes. And that's, like a, that's a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, 
Right. So on, on the graphite or on the metal oxide, you do develop this film. This film is composed not of solid lithium, but of uh, lithium combined with some organic materials, where these organic materials come from the electrolyte. Um, and again, as I mentioned before, uh, most manufacturers will add uh, different additives to their electrolyte. Um, and a lot of this is to promote um, good formation of this SAI layer and also to mitigate its uh, further formation. Um, so these parasitic side reactions that I've mentioned um, primarily do come from this SAI layer. So it's both sort of a blessing and a curse. Um, because while you do want a uniform and uh, sort of well-developed SAI layer initially in order to protect your electrodes from lithium deposition, um, you don't want this layer to keep building as you cycle the battery. Because, um, again, as I mentioned before, you get one electron for every lithium ion that diffuses across your electrolyte and goes into your cathode from your anode or into your anode from your cathode. Um, but if you start losing lithium ions all of a sudden, you're now decreasing the capacity of your battery. And the way that you would typically lose lithium ions is by their inclusion into this SEI layer. Because once a lithium ion sort of becomes a part of this SEI layer, you've now sort of removed it from actively participating in uh, the cell's discharge and charge uh, operations. Um, and so now essentially, over time, let's say you started out with 10,000 lithium ions. After, let's say, 100 cycles, you're down to 8,000 lithium ions. You've now decreased the operating capacity of your battery by 20%. This means that if before you were able to drive 200 miles, now you can only drive 160 miles. And maybe those 40 miles are the difference between getting back home safely and being stuck on the side of the highway. <laughs> Got it. So, so, the, um, so essentially what you're saying is that over time, the lithium ions that are what are allowing the charge rate to go back and forth and uh, be our rated range, uh, they are now being put out of commission by being part of this film. And, uh, and so now they're not available for charge and recharge capabilities. They're just sort of inertly hanging around and the battery is junk. Right. And on top of that, um, it's also possible that by building up the thickness of this SCI layer, you're increasing the internal resistance or possibly concentration over potentials or surface over potentials um, within your battery, which now means that you now need to use additional energy in order to get the same amount of current out. Got it. So um, talking about uh, discharge of lithium ion batteries, is there a sort of point of no return where um, if you like completely fully discharge a battery that you would not be able to uh, recharge it or is it can you go down to completely to zero um, and then still recharge it I guess I'm wondering because I thought I remember years ago remember reading about um, like if you're just yeah yeah like Tesla's or other electric vehicles getting bricked if they discharge like too much um, so like, I'm wondering like and is this like something that's compensated for an electron in the like sort of control circuitry or is right. this just something i'm making up uh no you're not <laughs> making this up um as a result of sort of the inherent fragility of lithium ion systems uh most commercial batteries that are made actually i think all commercial batteries that are made include um essentially a control circuit that's part of the battery pack um if you buy a lithium ion battery from um adafruit or uh one of those you know hobby sites um these will typically come with this protection circuit uh already included um, and that's because uh, if the voltage window of a lithium-ion battery exceeds a certain specified voltage, um, that is, if it gets charged too much or too low, um, you can promote the um, you can promote certain chemical reactions uh, in a given potential window uh, to start occurring. And uh, essentially, some of these reactions can uh, use up some of the cycle of lithium that's present, 
they can produce uh, dangerous or possibly volatile reaction products. Um, so the potential window of these batteries is very tightly controlled by these protection circuits. Um, I'm not very familiar with the case that you were describing before, um, but what I imagine happened is that um, maybe they didn't have these circuits or uh, something went wrong in uh, controlling the potential window of their batteries. Yeah, if I remember um, correctly, I think someone went on vacation yeah, for like a summer it, and left really. it, and it must have just slowly yeah, trickled yeah. away. So in that case, I would, I would hypothesize that uh, the battery probably self-discharged down uh, to a certain level. Um, it probably wasn't plugged in. The car probably wasn't plugged in, so it couldn't replenish that energy. Um, and as the battery continued to self-discharge and its uh, open circuit voltage uh, dropped lower and lower, um, other harmful, unwanted reactions started to occur that essentially uh, destroyed the battery from uh, operating correctly. Interesting. Um, so uh, I guess I have uh, one more. Well, like we have a lot of lithium-ion questions. I'll stop prefacing it with one more. Um, so when you talk about the, like, I'm kind of amazed at, like, when you're talking about how it's, like, between these layers of graphite and you got this, like, it sounds like a single layer of, like, lithium ion, like, atoms, basically. Like, and it's like a, you were talking about, like, the sandwich, I guess, of all those things. Um, and as I'm hearing that, I'm thinking that sounds, like, really fragile. And um, maybe in, like, computers and laptops or cell phones that's that's one thing but in like the incredibly like vibrating environment of a car is there any sort of like physical concerns there where like the this like elaborate like lattice thing in there is like subject to like vibration damage um so i think what you're talking about is and correct if i'm wrong like is there any danger to the actual cell from the car, sort of rumbling along a dirt road or something like that. Right, or right. Jostling like my laptop. Vibrations in my bag. like yeah. at a certain frequency or G forces or, or whatever. <laughs> like, is it is is it like subject to like physical damage just by like shaking? Right. Um, I think if anything, there'd be physical damage from damage to the enclosure. Um, again, whether that's an eighteen six fifty steel can or the corner of a pouch. Uh, but the ions themselves, I don't think will really be affected by those macro scale forces. Um, just because if you're trying to pull out a single lithium ion, you know, which is angstroms in diameter from uh, maybe a micron-sized piece of carbon, um, the rumbling from a car at whatever frequency that is and however much energy that's putting in probably isn't really going to affect it that much. Um, the bigger concern would be um, if you drop your phone off the top of a 10-story building and the corner of the battery pouch uh, gets damaged, um, and all of a sudden now you've just shortened the battery, um, or if one of those steel cans gets punctured, as you mentioned before, um, and introduces a short, um, I think that would be a bigger concern. Um, one thing that I probably should mention um, in talking about the anode and our discussion there is that there is some uh, amount of mechanical swell that happens as you uh, lithiate the anode, um, which is what it's called when you're introducing lithium ions into this graphite honeycomb sort of stack. Um, there is some amount of mechanical swell or strain that occurs. Um, and this can be for uh, pure graphite-based anodes on the order of about 7%. Um, there is recent work um, introducing silicon into the anodes, which does allow for much greater capacity. Um, but the drawback with silicon is that silicon can swell up to, I believe it's 300 to 400%. Um, is this during ma is this during manufacturing or during every uh, during, charge? During cycling. Oh, wow. During operation, <laughs> um, which you, you can imagine leads to a variety of different problems. Yeah, and Tesla actually, Elon Musk, in one of the more recent calls, mentioned they've started using silicon in their in their anodes. Right, um, and, I, and a I small think a lot percentage, of percentage. Yeah, and I think a lot of manufacturers are moving towards this. 
um, just because it is one of the ways to improve energy density. Yeah. And so basically it can, you can jam more lithium in the same physical space, but the problem is that, yeah, that the, the graphite is sort of able to accommodate that, um, the lithium ions inside of it without actually like mechanically, physically increasing its size too much, but the silicon's going to swell. And so you'd have to figure out where to, you can't make the steel case expand three times. Or maybe you can, and you can harness that energy as well. Maybe, (laughs) maybe you could. Um, Cool. So um, I guess w- one other question I know folks are going to be curious about is charging rate. So like uh, when I put gasoline into my car, I'm charging my car very quickly, um, uh, putting a lot of energy in there very quickly. So what are the factors that influence how quickly a battery can charge? And do you foresee a, a time when you could charge like a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack in five or 10 minutes? Like, is that theoretically possible or is that a pipe dream? Um, I don't want to borrow that it's theoretically impossible. Um, I personally don't know if I can uh, answer that to the level of confidence that I think you'd want. Okay. Um, it seems like it would be difficult just to like have access to that much power. I mean, well, the, the limitation wouldn't necessarily be from the grid side, it'd be from the battery side. Um, because you can imagine that if you view the grid as sort of a giant sink of energy, you can draw as much energy out of that as you want. Um, but the main limitation to fast charging, which is what I think you're talking about here, um, again, does go back to the kinetics of reaction um, and these diffusion rates inside the individual cell. So if you look at a single battery cell, um, in order to charge this battery and move electrons in the opposite direction of discharge, um, you essentially need an equal amount of lithium ions, again, diffusing across the electrolyte in the opposite direction. Um, but the problem is that depending on the structure of the electrolyte, the structure of the electrodes, the temperature that you're operating at, um, and a variety of other factors, the thickness of the SCI layer, these lithium ions can only move so fast. Um, y- you can imagine when you, when you drop a, a drop of cream in your cup of coffee, um, and you see that cream sort of disperse out, um, those molecules of cream are diffusing through your cup of coffee. Um, and depending on the temperature of that cream and coffee, um, and a variety of other factors, those out molecules will move slower or faster. Um, so going back to the lithium battery, depending on the makeup of your electrolyte, um, there may be certain compounds in there that impede the diffusion rates of your lithium ions. And if your lithium ions can't move fast enough, yet you're still pumping in this very high current, um, that energy has to go somewhere. Um, and what might happen instead is you might be promoting these parasitic side reactions. Um, again, whether they are in the SCR layer or not, um, you're going to be degrading the lifetime of your battery. Um, so it's essentially a question of, how fast can you make kinetics inside the system uh, while still uh, allowing for only the favorable reactions to occur? Got so it. how long does it take to charge up a single of those standard cells, what, the 18-whatever cell? Yeah. The 18650s. Because it seems like the, the theoretical maximum on like a Tesla battery pack, which is composed of all these individual cells, like just thinking like hypothetically would be that the, the circuitry was wired up such that every cell was charged at the same time in parallel. So like, you know, the, the theoretical maximum would be however long it takes to charge one cell and you would just charge all 20,000 of them at once somehow, which probably as, as a theoretical, like lower limit on, on duration. So yeah, isn't it, um, I guess there's sort of this concept of like, uh, the C, C value and right. isn't that sort of just the the reverse of how quickly you could discharge the battery as well? Cause it, because right, we're exactly. just going each direction, 
So the way to think about it is if you were to floor your Tesla all the time, how long would it take to discharge the battery? And that's the maximum. And I think it's around about an hour and a half or so for a Tesla. Um, and what's interesting then is that, correct me if I'm wrong then, that the, um, the improvements you would make to battery charging speed are also exactly correlated with the amount of improvements you would get at discharge uh, amperage or power. So because you're pushing the, if, if the resistance is higher on the, on the charge rate, it would also be higher on the discharge uh, rate, or is, yeah, are yes, they not actually one-to-one yes, -one correlated? Yes. In most cases, uh, it's the same whether you're charging or discharging. So everything Tesla's doing to be able to do higher and higher performance characteristics would also then let them charge the batteries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah which but is I mean, cool. I think like when you, I was just trying to think about this on the, on the walk over here too, is that like, if you have a 60 kilowatt hour battery pack, right? Like that's 60 kilowatts discharging over an hour or whatever the actual, I'm not sure if that's correct as I say it out loud. But um, if you imagine you have like a 600 volt outlet, which is probably way higher than what you're going to have in your house, but maybe approaching or a yeah, little beyond what a supercharger what is, yeah. and you charge that for an hour, you would need 100 amps of current, right? You would need 600 times 100, that would be 60,000, would be 60 kilowatts for an mm -hmm. hour. And I mean, those sound like, like 600 volts and 100 amps sounds like insane numbers. And like, even that would take an hour and that's already insane. So I, I don't know, I feel like transferring all this electricity is just not something we're equipped to. I mean, what would even those connectors look like if you had well, that much that, power a, coming through? That's a crazy thing we know about what the Tesla, so superchargers should end up be um, going to many hundreds of kilowatts. Uh, that's hour. crazy you might just have to, like, drive up to like a substation or something and plug your car into the grid and just like s dim the city lights as you charge well and the crazy thing too is that they're all going dc uh so the superchargers are dc so they're they've got those huge inverters at all the places um is there um so in in thinking about this and this is stepping way back into my completely uh, rudimentary understanding of like the electrolyte being this like liquid in between and um Obviously, once once you started talking about the lithium ion and this elaborate like graphite layer structure, it's not quite as applicable. But in in other battery chemistries where it's like kind of the simpler like liquid in between the the mm. cathode and anode, like um, potato battery, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or like the lead acid battery. Or um, is there any? I guess what I'm trying to think of is is there any way like is it theoretically possible to be able to like exchange the electrolyte? where you could, you could imagine like filling up at a gas station, except instead you're like sucking out the dead electrolyte and pumping in like charged electrolyte. Like, is that even a thing that could exist or does that not make sense? Uh, not really. Okay. <laughs> Sorry to shoot down your dream. Um, <laughs> just because it's not... We're just, really we're just pitching some ideas. It's like <laughs> Shark Tank all of a sudden. Just because it's not the electrolyte that's being consumed, it is that those cyclable uh, lithium ions that are being consumed. Um, and again, because the electrolyte is so volatile... Um, in these commercial cells that are being used. Um, I can't imagine that there'd be any easier, safe way to sort of exchange that electrolyte, even if that was the okay. <laughs> sort of cave, uh, cause of capacity fading. I'm just going to cross that one out then. <laughs> so one of, the, one of the things that I found really interesting in doing a little bit of research was um, the way that you would improve a battery over time uh, to be able to say, okay, this battery is not going to last for 10 years, but now it's going to last for 11 years or 5,000 cycles. That if you just think about that, uh, how would you how would you test if something is going to last for ten years versus eleven years? The very naive thing would be you'd have to wait ten years or eleven years. But obviously, we can't wait ten years to see how a battery performs. So, 
It's like at Ikea where they have that fake hydraulic butt yeah. that keeps sitting on the chair over and over again. But at, at a battery level, because these things last for so long and the, and the, the degradation is like, as you were saying, like uh, angstrom level measurements of stuff building up. Could you talk a little bit about sort of how the advancement in measuring very tiny amounts of current and very tiny amounts of heat are actually a big uh, enabling factor for us to make these batteries better? Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, the naive thing to do to see if a battery lasts 10 years is to cycle it for 10 years and see if it does you know, make it to your finish line. Um, it's, it's a little bit facetious, but on one hand, it actually is the only reliable way to actually do say that a 10-year bat- battery rated for the last 10 years will last 10 years, um, simply because there are so many factors that affect battery performance. Um, you know, not in, including temperature and charge currents and uh, discharge rates and all of these different things. Um, but as you mentioned, um, the uh, sort of importance of measuring very precise amounts of uh, temperature changes and charge changes um, is one of the enabling factors in sort of predicting the lifetime of a battery. Um, if I recall, there was a professor at the University of Waterloo. Uh, his name is Jeff Dunn. Um, he actually is now a Tesla fellow. He's, oh, he works really? with Tesla now. He used to work I with 3M. That. That's great. Um, shout out to Jeff Don. But he has, a, he has a video on YouTube of a lecture that he did um, where his lab essentially uh, developed um, an apparatus to very precisely measure coulombs of charge um, as he was cycling these batteries on his tester. What's a coulomb? Uh, right. So to back a little bit, <laughs> a coulomb is a measure of charge. Um, this is equivalent to a milliamp hour. Um, no, this is different from a milliwatt hour or a watt hour, um, where an amp hour is essentially how much current or an amount of current multiplied by amount of time. Um, in contrast, a watt hour is a unit of power times time. I'm giving you energy. So the difference here is charge versus energy, where energy sort of has a factor of your operating voltage built in as well. Um, but essentially, you can use uh, the amount of coulombs or charge that you're measuring to essentially count the number of electrons that are being passed through your external circuit um, because a single electron has a certain amount of charge and by counting uh, or by very precisely measuring the, the amount of charge that you are getting out of your battery as you discharge it and the amount of charge you need to put back into the battery to charge it back up again, you're essentially able to count electrons. Um, and by counting this in a very precise manner up to I think four or five significant digits um, essentially gives you a sense of how fast are these degradation reactions actually occurring? Um, because if you can't count precisely enough, then it's very hard to monitor um, on a micro scale and on a precise enough scale um, exactly which reactions are happening when, during uh, what regime of lifetime of the battery. Yeah, I mean, I, I watched that, that video, and um, I think the thing that was so interesting was that they were, basically, if you take just sort of a run-of-the-mill uh, uh, lithium-ion nickel-cobalt battery, with basically a very simple electrolyte, you will have some level of efficiency and goodness at different temperatures and um, energy density and all these things. But then what you were mentioning before of those electrolyte additives, the special sauce that different chemistries are going to have, that being able to tell whether or not those um, different chemicals you're adding into the electrolyte are making a difference, you can't, if you wait 10 years, you won't see an improvement in a battery for 10 years because you, you can't know if it's better. And so, yeah, what Jeff Don and his team have been able to do to make it so that you could measure this in a few thousand cycles instead of seven or 8,000 cycles or even fewer lets them experiment at a higher frequency rate to test whether or not 
this additive is going to help or not and that that's one of the big things in helping make uh these batteries get higher performance much faster than we had in the past and just just the idea that like counting counting electrons or measuring the temperature change of something which seems so simple but when you're trying to do it to your point of four or five significant digits it's incredibly hard to do and also that you have to um basically ensure that the at that level of precision that the batteries you're comparing are actually uh equivalent because if the manufacturing tolerances of one were worse then it may have nothing to do with the electrolyte but actually something to do with the fact that you know the humidity got in there or something so right, exactly they have to test thousands of cells all at once so it was really really fascinating so have, could you talk a little about sort of any experience you've got on like measuring like uh, you know testing batteries or playing with batteries in in uh in your research and in your experiments or is you know talk a little bit more about what your research is about sure sure um so a uh, sort of shameless plug for my research um as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, uh, my research is working on uh, recyclable or rechargeable, sorry, uh, zinc-based batteries. Um, so if you think back again to your AA battery, as we sort of belabored in the beginning, um, do not recharge these batteries. Um, Yet. Yes. Uh, the chemistry that I'm working on is um, the same cathode and anode, zinc and manganese dioxide. Um, the difference is that um, instead of using an aqueous, a water-based uh, alkaline electrolyte, I'm using what's called an ionic liquid, uh, which is a room temperature solution of salt. Um, essentially, you can imagine that uh, your cation and anion in the salt are sort of like bowling balls and ping pong balls. Um, and there's no real easy way to get these to form in a very nice crystal structure, um, just because their geometries are too, too different. Um, so by using um, this ionic liquid, we found that you actually are able to recharge zinc and avoid the formation of these dendrites. Um, the application that uh, my lab is going for is for small uh, wireless sensors for the Internet of Things. Um, and one uh, particularly amenable manufacturing process for these small devices is printing. Um, so we're combining this ionic liquid-based electrolyte with a printable polymer separator um, in order to develop these rechargeable zinc-based batteries, um, which have the advantage of being air-stable, um, printable, and uh, Eventually low cost. Yeah, eventually low cost. Um, and for our particular application, they uh, are generally a pretty good choice. That's I awesome. Like think. So I guess, yeah, for the future of lithium ion batteries, I mean, you're in the field of batteries and talking with folks and working in companies that are pushing the boundaries. I'm curious what your sense is for, do you expect constant improvement to continue? And there's lots of things in the lab that you already know will eventually be commercialized? Or do you feel like we're kind of the best of lithium ion is here and we need a new breakthrough technology. What's your sense of progress going forward with batteries for, for vehicles specifically? Um, so I think that lithium ion is probably maybe 50, 60% uh, mature as a general technology. Um, I think that with the chemistries that are still being uh, used in commercial devices today, there's still a fair, still a decent amount of runway left. Um, especially with the improved use of silicon in the anode and other um, improvements. Um, I know on the research scale, there's been a lot of effort into um, lithium air or lithium sulfur batteries, um, where I think, as I mentioned before, these batteries uh, do use solid lithium um, as the anode. And this allows for a much higher uh, energy density compared to lithium ion batteries because you are sort of 
removing this graphite that doesn't really contribute anything to how much energy you can store and replacing it with completely pure 100% lithium. Um, so that's sort of in the pipeline, but I know there are still some technological hurdles to be uh, overcome. Um, I know there are researchers at Berkeley and at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab who are working on these problems, um, as well as at Argonne National Lab um, with the J. Caesar Project, um, and that's the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research. Um, so I do think that eventually um, lithium ion will sort of be um, displaced by these lithium air or lithium sulfur batteries, just because they do offer this sort of as of yet unparalleled potential for energy density. What what do you have any sense of like is it two x three x five x ten x? I believe it's it's close to three or four x, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that. And it, would it be a similar form factor? Like would they still be in the same sort of cells? Like I guess I'm wondering like is if Tesla has a gigafactory set up and they're manufacturing these cells, would they sort of just switch chemistries and like the physical external stuff would be the same or does it involve like a different shape or something? Um, I think the form factors could be adapted to whatever, uh, whatever you need them to be. Um, I can't imagine that the sort of uh, standard sizes would be displaced by anything new um, anytime soon, just because a lot of infrastructure is already set up around them. Oh yeah. Speaking of manufacturing, do you know if the, if there's a lot of work on the manufacturing side of batteries as well, or is it purely a chemical challenge? Like, it, are the improvements in the quality of batteries limited primarily by the chemistry, or is there still a lot of research happening on how to make and produce batteries that are uh, live up to their chemical uh, capabilities? Um, they're sort of one and the same on the research side. Um, a lot of the, uh, I suppose, if you if you were to sort of divide. Uh, manufacturing, uh, I guess, type innovations from chemical innovations, the chemistry would inform decisions on the manufacturing. Um, But most of the time in battery research, uh, the same researchers that are investigating uh, the chemistry um, are also making the cells themselves as well. Um, So they're directly influencing the manufacturing process. Got it. So they also have to figure out how to get those chemicals into the battery in the way that they want. Right. And to be able to tightly control environmental environmental factors and things like porosity um, or form factors and all these other uh, factors. That's awesome. Um, So uh, I guess on the other end of the manufacturing battery life cycle thing, uh, I'm kind of curious about the environmental impact of uh, the lithium ion batteries specifically, since that's what what Tesla is going to be uh, radically uh, increasing in volume uh, with the gigafactory. But uh, like what happens when like is is are all of these like lithium ion batteries like when they are hit the end of their service life are they destined for a landfill uh, are they um are they are they able to be recycled or what percentage of them are 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 able to be recycled um and of any percentage that has to go into a landfill like how like inert or toxic are they in general lithium ion batteries are recyclable but one of the challenges there is that um, again, as you mentioned, um, these things do have a service life, um, and generally you won't throw these away, you know, until they're they're past their sort of useful lifetime. Um, but one of the issues is that it's a lot easier to recycle these batteries the newer they are. Um, again, due to these side reactions and other unwanted compounds that form. Um, but because of the pace of battery innovation, by the time a battery is thrown away, the actual chemistry in demand at the time has now changed. And for a lot of companies, it's just not profitable to try and recycle these batteries. Um, it's much easier just to mine new lithium. Um, 
so these batteries, while they claim are recyclable, I think a lot of the time aren't actually recycles. Um, and so whether they are destined for a landfill or an e-waste dump or something like that, um, most of the time that lithium is just sort of trapped there. Um, on the environmental side, um, the uh, solvents in the electrolyte are generally pretty volatile, um, not very good for human health or biological health, uh, but those uh, tend to evaporate quite, pretty quickly. Um, and so generally you're left with essentially some metals, some carbon, and some rare earth metals and a metal oxide. Um, the carbon is you know, pretty inert, um, and the metals as well. Um, one of the more contentious elements um, in lithium-ion batteries is the cobalt. Um, this is present in both MCO and NCA batteries, um, where the concern there is sort of the conditions under which the cobalt is mined. Um, there's a lot of human rights issues around that. Um, Since the majority of the cobalt's coming from uh, the Congo at this point, right? Right, exactly. Um, Until SpaceX can harvest it from asteroids. <laughs> Until then. What Tesla has said, at least publicly so far, is that they're building the Gigafactory such that it can also deal with the recycling component and that the, because it is a closed system, the actual like nickel, which is a high percentage of the total battery uh, cost and like constituent pieces, the cobalt itself, even if they change the, um, even if they were to change the chemistry, they would still be able to benefit from not having to pay for that material again. And so that their plan is to uh, take apart the battery into its constituent pieces again, and then potentially reuse it in whatever new formulation they have instead of reconditioning the battery. Um, so it would be a full like recycling of metal into being smelted into something else. Um, and, and that if they were to do that, then every time they can get that battery back, they've basically dramatically reduced the price of the next battery they, they make um, and probably still charge a, a good price for it. So um, one, of, one of the things you definitely see already is that, like aluminum cans, there's a pretty good market for the battery. So pretty much anytime there's a, a wreck with a, a Tesla Model S or X, um, there are electronic folks who are uh, buying those wrecked vehicles at salvage yards because they want the batteries. Um, and they're currently using them for uh, projects to electrify, like not Porsche 911s and crazy vehicles. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, at, at some point they would probably need to be fully recycled but right now almost all of them have enough charge that they're still useful for some other purpose so uh, um digging into the the cobalt um you mentioned and um nice pun oh hey uh, i didn't even catch that accidental pun <laughs> um you mentioned the cobalt being the sort of like the procuring of the cobalt being um a difficulty uh would the co does the cobalt that comes out of the battery when it's at the end of its lifetime has it been like altered such that it's not useful or can the cobalt like be like extracted and reused like is that a highly recyclable part of the battery or is there some sort of chemical reaction that makes it undesirable or difficult to reuse um so i'm not actually too sure on this um but i would guess that because the cobalt itself is part of this metal oxide um uh, unless there are some side reactions that occur that do involve uh, the cobalt in some way i would imagine that that metal oxide would be more or less intact um, and so then it'd be a question of extracting that cobalt from that metal oxide um, into whatever useful form you'd want it to be in. Thank you so much, Bernard, for joining us and uh, helping us uh, navigate this extremely complex and um, dense topic of batteries. So thank no you very My much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's and pretty exciting because it's, yeah, I mean, it seems new. like it's the, the bottleneck for so much of our technology. Like I mean, we've got batteries in everything and 
they haven't increased at the same rate that like chips have gotten faster and more like I guess there's been a symbiosis of things getting more efficient and batteries getting a little bit better and that kind of resulting in stuff. But I mean, if we could get to something where my phone could last like a week instead of a day, that would be amazing. Yeah. The, uh, the thing to remember is that the lithium ion battery really only came out in the nineties, uh, yeah, that's right. in commercial use. And it was by Sony. And one of the funny things I learned a little while ago was that, um, it, it actually coincided with the decline of, um, uh, tape deck man- tape manufacturing. Yeah, is this correct. right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's correct. Um, and that essentially Sony figured out a way to make batteries using the way they were making tape for cassette tapes. Oh, that's fascinating. And they transitioned the machines. And so one of the weird sort of byproducts of history is that because Sony was losing out in uh, transitioning technologies into digital CDs, they had all this equipment and they figured out how to make batteries using the uh, same machines they were doing tape with. And so would lay it out on this film and roll it up. And so we're really, um, what is that? Uh, 27 years or so into the lifespan of this technology and we've got over a hundred years in the internal combustion engine um, yeah i mean i remember before when we were using like nicad and yeah. nickel metal hydride that there was all these like sort of voodoo you'd have to do to like you know make sure there was all these like wisdom that went around where you have to make sure you discharge it all the way before you plug it back in and like they were i guess they were a little more temperamental about the charge cycles Right. And some of that seems to have carried over where the like this tribal wisdom or, or cargo culting, I guess, of like battery charging still exists today. You can still see it in forums and stuff. But um, if I'm maybe this would be a good question to, to, to nail down while we while we have you here is, <laughs> is that true that like now it doesn't matter, like the lithium ion batteries aren't sensitive to your charge and discharge? Like, do you, will my iPhone last longer if I always run it all the way down before I charge it all the way back up to a hundred or does it, is it just opportunistic? Right. What do you do with your iPhone? How do you charge and cope uh, with your I, battery? I use my phone until the battery gets low and then I just plug it in and when I need to use it again, I just take it out. Um, essentially a lot of this tribal wisdom that you've mentioned that sort of carried over from the NICAD and nickel metal hydride days, um, isn't applicable to lithium ion anymore. Um, simply as a result of how the chemistry works. Um, probably the, Worst thing you could do with your lithium ion battery is to actually charge it and use it from 100% to 0%, charge it all the way back from 0% to 100% every single day while keeping it at a very high temperature, um, while also keeping it plugged in 100% of the time, um, simply because uh, the main degradation mechanisms for lithium ion batteries, again, does come from the loss of cyclable lithium um, in these SEI layers and from parasitic side reactions. So the less you actually have to move this lithium, so the less you actually use the battery, the longer it'll last. Um, high potentials are a problem because they can promote other side reactions. Um, but given the choice between uh, swinging your battery from between zero and 100% every day versus leaving it plugged in, I would rather leave it plugged in all the time. Um, and then temperature, right? Like yeah, it, right. And high temperatures also exacerbate parasitic side reactions as well. So I should put my battery in the fridge. If I could, it would be better in the fridge. Uh, maybe not necessarily the fridge, but just don't bring it with you into the Mojave Desert. All right. I think I can do that. Yeah, that's no problem. Cool. Well, thanks so much, uh, Bernard. And no uh, I think that we'll uh, cover. I'm sure there'll be lots of extra questions. So we might have to have you come on uh, again some point sure. in the future and we'll, we'll do a lightning round of questions. But uh, <laughs> if people do have questions or comments, uh, where can they reach us, Mike? Oh, that's me. Um, yeah, you can uh, hit us up on our website at theteslashow.com. Uh, you can tweet at us on twitter.com at our screen name at the Tesla Show. Uh, and then uh, we have a subreddit too on, on reddit.com, uh, r slash the Tesla Show. 
And uh, there's a form on our website where you can contact us. There are, there are a plethora of ways. Um, there are so lots yeah, of ways. Reach out, listen, feedback. All right. Well, Sold. thanks. And uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Bernard. <laughs> All right.